Good morning. This morning we're going to walk through a section of First Peter. I would like to read that section for you. Um, we're going to skip the normal introduction um, that apostles give and that Peter gives. We're going to start at verse 3 of chapter 1. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 and into the first three verses of chapter through three, uh, chapter 2 up to verse 3. So we're going to read 1-3 through 2-3 with the caveat of we're going to skip verses 10, 11, and 12. 10, 11, and 12 are kind of parenthetical. They don't really fit with what we're going to talk about this morning. They are important. I'm not saying there's any part of scripture that isn't important, but they don't really fit with, with what we're doing. Uh, Peter sets aside that uh, the prophets of old looked for when Christ would come, and it, it really doesn't fit with what we're going to talk about. So we're not saying that part of scripture isn't important. We're saying it'll stop our, our flow this morning. So if you would please follow along as I read uh, from the Apostle Peter, his first letter, starting at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Jump to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in this, excuse me, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Wow, there's a lot there, isn't there? I just want to walk through these verses a little bit, kind of glean a little thing here and there. We're certainly not going to be able to exhaust them this morning. First of all, it's God's word. Uh, Is it possible for us to exhaust it? Of course not. Um, But even if we had the time and I had the skill, we, we couldn't do it. But let's pray first. Father, handling your word is a serious thing. You know that I'm a little bit scared of this. I'm reminded of your servant Moses who said, I can't do that. And you said that that's right, Moses couldn't. But in your power and through your spirit, you would speak through him. So I ask that your word would speak to us this morning and that we would glean things that would impact the way we live for your glory and for your honor and for your praise. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start again at the top and just kind of go through verse or two, verse or two. Starting at verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He has caused us to be born again by his great mercy. The Lord didn't let you be born again by yourself. The Lord didn't make it possible for you to be born again by yourself. He didn't allow you to be born again. He caused it. The Lord, Yahweh, the sovereign of all that there is, the creator of all that exists, that ever did exist and ever will exist, he caused you to be born again. That's an incredible thought. That's almost enough to stop right there and just sing and shout praise. It's almost like our memory verse, which, well, it was up there earlier. Um, Paul goes into that, and all of a sudden he has to stop. To the, to the, only, to the only God, immortal, invisible, he, he can't not, and I, I almost feel like that here. God caused me to be born again. Do I deserve anything more than that? I didn't even deserve that. And by causing us to be born again, we have a living hope. Emphasis is on living. Living. 
Not a dead hope, not a hope against all hope, not a futile hope, not a silly hope, but a living hope. But, but even that sounds kind of silly. How can hope be alive? Some of us are hoping for warmer weather. Some of us are hoping for more snow. Sorry, I, I am. Some of us are hoping the Packers, well, we don't want to go there, it's too soon. How can hope be a living thing? Because this hope, this living hope that we have, is not a detached hope. Our hope is a living hope because it's rooted in a living Jesus, not a dead man. Now in 2022, in a Christian church in Merton, that sounds nice, that sounds plausible. We hear about Jesus rising from the grave. We talk about it, we sing about it. It almost seems, it almost seems normal. There is nothing normal about someone rising from the dead. That's an incredible thing. Put yourself, uh, if you can, imagine yourself hearing this letter from the Apostle Peter for the very first time. It was written about 60 AD. So it was written to, the, to those who were dispersed. So why were they dispersed? There was persecution going on. Imagine you're hearing it for the very first time. You're probably hearing it in a small home, a home church. You probably had to go through covert means to get there so the authorities wouldn't know. When you gather, you probably speak and read and pray in hushed tones because you don't know who's listening on the outside walls. When you go out to do your everyday activities, which I don't know what that would have been back then. I know there wasn't a Meyer or a Costco, so I don't know where they went. But when they did, they were surrounded by friends and family, neighbors, enemies, soldiers, all of whom certainly knew about the famous execution of a Galilean. Certainly, if you were there, you knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who saw the execution. If you didn't know someone or if you didn't witness it yourself. People don't rise from the dead. That's an amazing thing. Roman soldiers were experts in execution and experts in death. They're not going to allow something like that to happen. That's why this is such an amazing thing. And that's why this hope is an amazing living thing. Because we have a living Savior. And if God has caused you to be born again, then you know the resurrection is true. Because God has made you alive in him. And you know that you can trust in and believe in this living hope. But hope in what? Verse 4 says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our hope, the Christian's hope, is for an inheritance. An inheritance that can't fade, that can't perish, or fall into disrepair, like that beautiful pocket watch you got from your great-grandfather 
like maybe that quilt or that dress that your great-great-great-great-grandmother brought from the old country that's yellowed and tattered, but it's got memories, but it fell into disrepair. This hope can't do that. How can we be sure that this hope, this inheritance will last? Verse 4, it's kept in heaven for you. It is being kept in heaven for you. Who, and this is going to be a little bit difficult here because who and you sound the same, but I want you to think this through. Who is the you when it says kept in heaven for you? The end of verse 4 and verse 5 says, you who by God's power are being guarded. The who is you. The who is those whom God has caused to be born again. That's, it's kept in heaven. The inheritance is being kept in heaven for those who God has caused to be born again. Who by God's power are being guarded. Now who's doing the guarding? Who's doing the keeping, the protecting of you and of this inheritance for you? God himself is. His power, verse 5, who by God's power are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. God is guarding your faith, your salvation. Well, it's really his salvation anyway, not yours, right? Revelation 7.10 says, salvation belongs to our God. And why wouldn't it be his? He did it all, didn't he? Did you bring anything to the table? What, he planned it from eternity past. He used his prophets to prophesy about it. He fulfilled all of those prophecies, all pre-Bethlehem, all the way through Golgotha, and beyond, he fulfilled the prophecies. Might we even say that the Father killed Jesus? Isaiah 53, 4. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, Yahweh, he has put him to grief. He placed our sins and our iniquities on Jesus. He raised his son Jesus from the grave. He caused us to be born again. It's his salvation. And there we have it. We're right back. He caused us to be born again. And this being born again that Yahweh has caused in his people is just the beginning. The fullness of salvation will be revealed, the end of verse 5, in the last time. That may be a fancy way of saying at the end, at the end of time. When it's all said and done, salvation, full salvation, will be fully realized. We continue, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now, well, wait a minute. Do you? Are you? In this you rejoice. Are you rejoicing? Or are you trudging along, just biding your time, waiting until the end? 
Peter tells us his readers were rejoicing. Are you rejoicing? Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch the one word in there? There's one nine-letter word in there that we don't like very often, we don't pay much attention to, and it kind of feels out of place. Nine letters, N-E-C-E-S-S-A-R-Y, necessary. Why are trials necessary? Why would it be necessary for trials to come? And I don't mean small trials, I mean not insignificant, not minor trials, but trials that grieve the followers of Jesus. Trials from God that grieve us are necessary. But why? That, that, that doesn't make sense. Let's read on, verse 7. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are there to test the genuineness of your faith. Test for who? Now, if you're in school, whether that be grade school, college, whatever, the professor, the teacher, the homeschool parent tests you to find out what you know and whether or not you really know the material. So what is this test for? For God to find out if your faith is genuine? The sovereign doesn't know if my faith is real? He doesn't know if your faith is real? Of course he does. He knows if it's genuine. The test is for me. The test is for you. We need it for ourselves. Testings and trials are good for us in many ways. They reveal our weaknesses. They reveal how poorly we are when we try to do things ourselves. They teach us to rest and to trust in Jesus, to trust in God and not ourselves. They stretch us. Successfully enduring a trial can teach us much about our God and our ability to rely on him and his faithfulness. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, in 2009 was diagnosed with a brain tumor and given three years to live. Matt is alive today in 2022 and he's still pastoring. Matt's very open about his story. He had faith in God, he knew God could bring him through it, but he'd never really experienced God bringing him through it. And he was a little concerned. I know I can, but can I? I know my faith is strong, but it's never been pushed to the limit. Matt now gives glory to God for the testing that proved God is faithful through it all. Not just because Matt's been healed and because he's a survivor, but because in the darkest days, and there were plenty of those, he never stopped trusting or believing. He knew that he could, he thought that he could, but until that Matt Chandler and his family were pushed to the limits and tested as through fire, he wasn't exactly sure how strong his faith was. One of the reasons for trials and for testing 
is for us to know how strong our faith is. Now, it wasn't Matt Chandler's faith. It wasn't the faith of his family. It wasn't their willpower. It was their God that held them and carried them through it. And they knew he would and they knew he could. But until he actually did, there was a, yeah, God can do this, but a little hesitancy, a little uncertainty. But because they came through that test, the Chandler family, along with many others who've gone through other or similar circumstances, it results in, as the end of verse 7 says, praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. I have a nephew that struggles with the slightest bit of stress. He doesn't like it, he doesn't want to it, and he gets rid of it as quickly as he can, usually by self-medicating. Not good for him, not healthy for him. I'm not sure he's ever really experienced stress because the minute it comes upon, he runs from it. Chris and I have tried to, more Chris than me, tried to counsel him and try to talk to him stress. It's okay for stress. It pushes you, it stresses you. He doesn't understand that. Stress can at times be good and at times be necessary. Even in construction, when they're making metal, when they're making things, they stress it. They put it to a stress test. They need to know how strong the steel is before they start building a structure. They want to know if it'll collapse or not. You have to stress it. You have to test it. You have to put it through trials. Necessary trials that can grieve us can also show us how our God is real, how he can be trusted, and how he fulfills his promises to uphold us and carry us through. And until someone or something is tested and tried, and I don't mean tried like give it the old college try, I mean like tried and true, we cannot know how strong it is. We cannot know if something will endure hardship if it's never gone through hardship, if it's never been stressed, if it's never been pressed. There's one more thing I want us to learn. I'm going to read it again, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One more thing before we move on to verse 8. Think of precious stuff. Diamonds, jewels, silver, gold. Gold's tested, but it's usually not tested for strength. It's tested by fire to purify it. God wants you to know that the faith that he has given you, that he has caused to be born in you, is more precious than gold. And he wants to purify you. Our Lord's desire, his work, is to make us holy not just in word, but in deed and in action as well. Remember who wrote this? Peter. Was he tested? Did he go through a trial? Come on, we're all thinking about it. The same one, right? He denied Jesus. Did that grieve him? Yeah, it did. But Peter is stronger for it. Peter's speaking from experience. This isn't just an academic lesson. Sometimes for us to listen to voices of experience is a good thing. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not... Wait a minute. Do you? Is that true? I mean, okay, I, I know you haven't seen the risen Lord Jesus. It, it, at least I, 
I, I think you haven't, but is it true that do you love him? Do you believe in him? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you love him? Do you believe in him? Do you rejoice? Do you ever rejoice with a kind of crazy joy, a joy that can't be explained or can't be understood, a joy that's, that's, what's the word Peter uses? Inexpressible. A joy that reminds you that because of your faith in the risen Christ, you will one day be fully and completely saved. We use the terms, we use this phrase often in our circles, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will one day be saved. Well, if I am saved, so what? What do I do? What do I do in the meantime? I'm saved, I'll grab a bag of chips and put on Netflix, right? No, what do I do in the meantime? Let's keep reading. And remember, we're skipping, so we're going to go to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds... Well, wait a minute. Therefore. I, I kind of have to. We all know it, right? Come on. When you see therefore... You ask, what's it there for? Therefore, in light of the truths that God has caused you to be born again, that God has given you a living hope, that God is giving you an imperishable inheritance, that God is guarding that inheritance, and he is guarding you, that to God you are more precious than gold, and he desires to refine you and purify you. In light of these truths, therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There, so what do we do? You prepare for action. You stay sober-minded. You set your hope fully on the grace. Now let's not get sidetracked. When we hear sober-minded, we immediately think of drink and alcohol. Clearly, the scriptures teach drunkenness is sinful. And as such, it shouldn't be tolerated and it shouldn't be allowed. But let's not think that's limited to what it is. Sober-minded is a much bigger and broader context. And in this context here in 1 Peter, it's even more. Basic synonyms for sober, serious, sensible, solemn, thoughtful. You can't prepare for action if you're flighty. You can't prepare for action if you're always being goofy or silly, if you're never taking anything seriously. Sin is serious. Jesus thought so. His torture and death proves us. Sin is serious. Prepare for action with a serious mind and attitude. Well, what kind of action? Maybe that's explained too. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I'm to prepare my mind for action. What kind of action? Obedience is an action. Living holy lives is an action. 
Do you think obedience is just a list of don'ts? Maybe there's part of it. There's certainly some things that we are restricted from that we should not be part of. But it's a list of do's also. And that list is longer. Quick refresher, the Beatitudes. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you being merciful? Are you a peacemaker? The famous passage in Matthew 25 between the sheep and the goats. Have you fed the hungry or the thirsty? Have you welcomed the stranger, clothed the destitute, taken care of the sick and imprisoned? Have you ministered to the least of these? The middle of verse 16, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, just like sober-minded, we see the word passions here, and our culture and our society has taken that word to mean one thing. And again, we lose sight of the fuller meaning of the word passion. Certainly, there are inappropriate intimacies that are sinful. Certainly, lust of the flesh is a passion that is sinful. But we can be passionate about many things. Most often, and I'm probably speaking more for myself than anybody else, but more often we're passionate. The thing we're most passionate about is ourself. Our property, which I only have because God gave to me in the first place. My stuff, which I only have because God gave me the ability to work and earn and buy stuff, but it's my stuff. My rights, which are God-given and I only have because God gave them and I'm following Christ who set his rights aside and humbled himself, but my rights. We're passionate about stuff, but we're not passionate about the things of God. Search your own heart. I don't want to say things about you. I don't know you well enough. Not further on in that verse, it says, be holy. We make jokes about it, not just the world, we make jokes too. Stop thinking of being holy as playing a harp on a cloud with some joylessly stoic attitude. Sober and stoic are not the same things. God is holy, so you ought to be holy. How does God act? Maybe that will help define us how we should act. God is compassionate to those who hate him. I know that because he's had compassion on me. God shows mercy on the just and the unjust. Let's continue verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time in exile? The NIV puts it this way. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. I kind of like that. How often do you consider yourself a foreigner here? How often do you consider that you really are living in exile? I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved at all, but let me... 
Take a good look at your life and how active you are in politics, and I'll know if you consider yourself a foreigner, a foreigner in exile or a major player in this place on this orb. The end of verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed from your futile ways. What futile ways? Well, for each of us, they're probably a little bit different. But I think there's some things that are standard. Humanness, self-centeredness, pride, idolatry. That's all stuff we've inherited. But we were ransomed. And we were ransomed with the most precious thing in all of creation. The blood of Jesus Christ. The only Son of God. God the Son the second person of the triune God. And when we conduct ourselves in a way that's not with holy fear, when we are not obedient, when we allow our ignorant passions, as Peter calls them, to rule over us, we pour contempt on that precious blood that was shed for us. Verse 20 And he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here we see again from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, the plan of Yahweh was to save his own people through the death and resurrection of his own son. But don't miss the very end of verse 20. Don't miss for the sake of you who through him are believers. For your sake. For your sake. The very end of verse 21 that your faith and your hope are in God. Where is your hope, this living hope? Where is your faith? Those who are called by God and born again by God, their hope and their faith are in God, in the triune God, not just the Son who was raised, but also in the Father who sent him and raised him, and in the Holy Spirit, Although we didn't read verse 2, verse 2 talks about the Holy Spirit sanctifying us. And although we didn't read verse 12, verse 12 talks about the Holy Spirit enabling the prophets and others to preach the good news to us. Our hope and our faith is in God. Continuing verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Yes, as followers of Jesus, we are called to obedience, but do not think that obedience saves you. You can only be obedient as much as you submit to the Lord. We must do We must work, but even then it's not us that's doing it. 
Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can't do good works until you're even created in Christ Jesus. The purifying of your souls is not done by your obedience. No, your obedience reveals that God has worked and is working in you. He has purified and is purifying you. Don't reverse the order. Don't assume you can be right with God by obedience. The obedience is something that reveals that God's working in you. That's how a pure heart can show real love, real brotherly love to one another. We're looking at 1 Peter, but of course we can look at other scriptures where it says we're not just called to love our brothers, we're called to love those that hurt us those that offend us, those that persecute us, those that are different from us. We're called even to love our enemies. But where does this purity that leads to a pure heart come from? Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Your purity does not come from within you. No, it comes from God causing you to be born again. And again we see the word imperishable. You have been born again, made new by the living word of God that remains forever and is imperishable, much like that inheritance we spoke of earlier. If God's word remains forever, then his promises must remain forever as well. He promised us that inheritance. He promised he would guard it and keep it till the last time. Let's continue on, starting at chapter 2. So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So put away all malice. So is kind of like the word therefore. So, so what? So because of all this other stuff, so because you've been born again, because you have a living hope, because you're receiving an imperishable inheritance, because God is guarding that and guarding you, because he has called you to be holy, because you've been ransomed with the most precious blood, because your purity that he has enabled and he has caused in you will last as long as his word, which is forever, so because of these things, Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. That's a long list. That's a hard list for me to read. And then, like newborns, desire pure spiritual food. Of course, that's all if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted the Lord is good? Has he caused you to be born again? If so, then your desire 
for his holiness should permeate every fiber of your being. Does it? If it does not, then I ask you to seek Christ, to repent and confess, and God will cause you to be born again. Then you also will have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance, kept and guarded by God himself for you. Talked about this inheritance a little bit, but Peter never really tells us what it is. He says there's an inheritance kept for you. He tells us what it can't do, it can't fade, it can't be defiled, it can't perish, but he didn't tell us what it is. Odd. Well, maybe other parts of scripture tell us where it is. The psalmist in Psalm 16 says, the Lord is my, po- my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in beautiful places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is my portion, my cup. Maybe the Lord himself is the inheritance of his people. We're not going any further into Peter, but if we go just a little bit further, we find that his people that he has caused to be born again, he's making them into a royal priesthood. If we go back, and and we're not going to, I'll look it up if you want, or you can talk to me about it later. But when the priesthood of Israel was being set up, and when the nation of Israel was being portioned out and given portions of the land, Judah was given a area of land, Benjamin was given a land, all of them were given portions of land, except Levi, the priests. They weren't given any land. They weren't given an inheritance. You know what God said to the Levites? I'll be your inheritance. No wonder the inheritance of God's people can't fade or perish or be defiled. The great gift of God, the inheritance that God has given you, is himself. If your perfect idea of heaven and eternity is the Packers always winning, if it's that perfect fall, colored day on a windy road, driving a Harley forever, if it's eating and never gaining weight, if it's always catching the trophy fish or shooting the trophy buck, then the inheritance of God is not for you. That's to your pity. But if you want God, and you want more of him, and you want more of him forever, then endure the trials, even the ones that cause you to grieve. Prepare your sober mind for actions of obedience. Live a holy life. Conduct yourself as one who has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. Earnestly love one another. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and taste the goodness of the Lord because he is your inheritance forever if he has caused you to be born again. Father, we thank you for your word. May what you have spoken here impact how we live. May what I have spoken here blow away like chaff. May you receive glory and honor and praise forevermore.
Amen.